Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is a podcast discussing 25 of our favourite movies from a given decade. This is Volume 2, 2010 to 2019, Episode 44, Bad Times at the El Royale. Who is the we? It's me, Matt Waters, and I'm joined by Ben Phillips. Ben, as always, we record long in advance. The clocks have changed. How messed up is your body? Not too bad, actually. Because okay. this is the nice one. This is the one we get the additional yeah. hour of sleep. Which the other is one the... is is a cruel punishment that was made up by weirdos. Why do we still do daylight savings? Like, what, uh, what is the point? People try to explain it, and then there's always, like, this... I, I don't pay attention enough to them. I'm just like, it's a thing that happens until someone decides that we don't do it anymore. Is um, it just our massive raging hard-on for wartime things in this country? It's supposed to be about, like, you get more daylight during the day. Yeah, I get it, but, like, can we just put it to the one that, like, is beneficial and leave it there? <laughs> well, let's go even more controversial. Let's just go, like, right in the middle. We shoot okay. the entire clock half an hour. Half an hour, okay. There are half-hour time zones I discovered once when looking into all this. And it's like, that must be really weird, setting your clock half an hour one way or the other. It's um, a shame that California to Nevada is not oh, a time skip. Look at you, bringing it back to the movie in a way I never could. Yes, this is Bad Times at the El Royale. This is another controversial map pick. I know it's not a popular film. No one has seen it, and the people that have were like, it's alright. But for me, I adore it. I have several large criticisms or like things that I think are slightly broken about it, but I like the things I like about it so much that I don't care about those. I'm going to guess like the things that we've got complaints about it okay. are very similar. Okay. I'm sure the complaints that we've got are very, very similar. It's just how much you let that affect yeah. the rest of the movie going experience. The... I can sit here and rattle off and go like, Drew Goddard is someone who I'm very interested to see carry on doing a directing career yeah. between these two movies that he's done because he's definitely got a flair for it. Yeah. Um, Everyone who is in this fucking movie absolutely brings it. I don't think there is a bad performance in this movie. Especially since Theo Rivo, who is like a goddamn star and (laughs) needs to do more things and and all the rest of it. And but then like the complaints are like it's too long. It's too long. So weird. Like so weirdly paced and so weirdly constructed that it just kind of begins to get like distracting. I like the structure of it. You know the vignettes, the the room by room gimmick. It is definitely too long. I would move Billy Lee around a bit. Obviously, he's their biggest star, and I think he was like the second or first person to be announced to be in it, so they blew this. But in a perfect world where marketing isn't a concern and things don't get out, I would have loved it if they didn't even tell you Chris Hemsworth's in this movie and you don't see Billy Lee until he strolls up to the hotel near the end. And then just imagine everyone's shock when, oh my god, that's Chris Hemsworth. But he was in the trailers, like, doing his sexy dancing and everything, so... I enjoy everything up until he arrives, and I enjoy, in theory, what happens after he he arrives. It's just, it's, it's the act that drags the longest, and I don't know which bit I think it's like lose a minute here or a minute there rather than like dump an entire section oh but... yeah a lot of this movie is like every scene just goes on like a minute too long mm. and you could like shave off an awful lot of it and some of it is great like yeah. there are sequences in this movie where I'm like this is actually the right length but because you're coming off the back of like five scenes that are too long this yeah. scene that's actually like really quite well timed the the multiple singing detours that they make to just show off how good Cynthia Rebo oh, is oh my god final one where she's doing the clapping and that's the scene (laughs) yeah where they're digging into the the basement or like just underneath the motel room and they're watching it it's like in a better paced movie this is the highlight scene i still don't know how that scene alone didn't like blow up go viral become a word of mouth phenomenon because the second i finished watching this movie i was like who 
the fuck is Cynthia Arriba? <laughs> because, like, she's coming off The Colour Purple and, and, like, a career on stage. And this is her debut movie, even if she shot Widows first. But So, like, there would have been nothing that I would have seen her in. But I was just like, whoa, who are you? Because, yeah, yeah. Like, every one of those those takes... Yeah, they did, like, 20 takes of one of the numbers, 27 of another. It's all legit. Most movies and TV shows, if, if there's any kind of music, it is fake and added on afterwards because of the logistics of trying to record sound for realsies on the set. But she did every one of these, and it was it's insane. Um. <laughs> I'd seen her in TV because obviously she's in like chewing gum for an episode and okay. she's like has a recurring role on Broad City although only in one episode before this movie came out so she's like very much a, a New York theatre actress who yeah. people who are in New York know her she's she's won a Tony at this point took down her. Hamilton <laughs> yeah, the only acting nomination to like lose for Hamilton was Philippa Sue versus Cynthia Revo. which is wild because um, of how good Philippa Sue is like it suggests she's the worst one somehow but no yeah, yeah and and, then, and obviously she's she's a double Academy Award nominee now for original song and for best actress. Yeah. Whether or not she's good in Harriet is a different question, but she <laughs> certainly is someone who I'm excited to see. Yeah, yeah. A big name for the future. Beyonce was considered for that role, and I'm glad they didn't go that way, because I can see why you would look at her for it, but the, the parts of this I like about it are speaking to me on that level of, like, the dormant romantic ideas I had about writing and making movies. Like, it activates those parts of my brain. Like, Sass, when she hears certain songs, it makes her, like, desperately want to be you know, making music again, other than like the intros and outros to our podcasts, of course. <laughs> I saw okay. it in the cinemas when it came out because I'm like, oh, one of the few. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, obviously, I'm coming out of this. I'm going like, right, I fucking love Drew Goddard. Mm -hmm. This is a man who like did one of my favorite movies of 2012, 2011, however you want to split <laughs> Cabin in the Woods. Yes, he has a TV writing career that is obviously he's in both the Whedon and the Abrams wheelhouses. He carries on to work with both Whedon and Abrams in in film. The Martian's a great script, like. Cabin in the Woods is a great script. Cloverfield's a great script. Uh, his episodes of Lost and and Buffy are some of the best episodes of Lost and Buffy that you can find. Obviously, he started out on Daredevil and like did probably like he set the course for the the, the best season of that show. Worked on The Good Place. Was in Purgatory, working on Sinister Six, which I bet would have been good somehow because he was writing it, but yeah. never came out because of the second of three abandoned uh, Spider Verses. This, this does feel like obviously the the Sony deal collapses in the wake of them signing the deal with Marvel and Marvel just kind of goes like you're bidding everything that you've got or like we're not mm. interested in anything that you've got so this no one was like... interested in what they had they wanted like <laughs> missing parents and animal DNA splicing no one gave a shit about that so I'm guessing like this film got turned around quite quickly after that where it's just like I just want to make something I've spent so long I quit Daredevil to go <laughs> to Jeez. go make this movie yeah the movie's never happening I've got this spec script that I'm sat here I will yeah. sell this to Fox and get to make this and I'm sure it was a fight to, to get him to directing this movie because as much fun as Kevin in the Woods is it wasn't a huge hit so let's just talk about that now because the second I think you saw me put this on the shared google doc for our proposed volume 2 list you from then until I don't know <laughs> a few weeks before it started I mean I guess you accepted the lock that the pick was locked in but until like two days ago you're like you need to watch Cabin in the Woods because I think it's better and I did finally watch Cabin in the Woods it is fun I don't think it's better I think no performance in Cabin can touch any of the big ones in this I don't think it's technically as well shot as this is 
And that's fair. I think for as fun as the grand reveal is and those last like 15 to 20 minutes are, and I understand you have to put the work in to get there, I just wish I enjoyed the work they put in to get there more. Other than, of course, cutting backstage to the guys watching them. Like, all of that is, is really great fun. But like, the actual, we're making a sort of borderline parody horror movie is like middling in my opinion we're making a borderline parody horror movie that also has to adhere to all the tropes of a yeah, yeah, of a borderline. yeah. well like, i said to you like is all the perviness because whedon is a big old lech or because this is a horror movie and they don't have enough clout to say no and then it becomes clear it's like oh you're parodying that horror movies are full of tits and sex and stuff and it's like yeah. okay but could you have shot this in a slightly different way <laughs> like did you actually have to show her boobs like could you not have just i mean the boob done I, some I, careful I, branch and front of the camera type stuff i don't know <laughs> the boob is funny it, it's just, funny just, just just for the scene of the three of them sat there in the room acting like it's this great religious moment for the three of them. Yeah, yeah yeah but you can do that without actually showing <laughs> sure, the audience sure. yeah. uh, <laughs> just cabin the woods I, it's funny because cabin in the woods is literally like my movie that bad times the real is like right. i can throw cabin in the woods on at any point in time and be like i am in my happy place right now like i watched it the other night and i was yeah. like i know the beats and rhythms of this movie that i can just sit and just it's like, it's like a warm bath for movie. Yeah. It helps. It's like a breezy ninety minutes as yes. well. <laughs> that part was was preferable for sure. <laughs> I like the reveal. Like I like the setup. I I kept saying to you that like you can draw this straight line from stuff that they'd done on Buffy and Angel with like the season where there's like the secret government branch that slay vampires and it's like a like organized hierarchical operation and then in angel where they're working for the law firm and it's all like oh look here's just office workers at like a demon law firm you can draw a straight line from that to cabin in the woods and then you can take some elements of that forward to good place um i enjoy that i think bradley whitford and richard jenkins are like the best part of that movie by a long long way and then every time you cut back to them i'm like oh this is great i just i don't really care for the horror movie they made but like that's, I know it's like, on purpose I, I, and it's all for a big payoff and the payoff is in, is insane but god the payoff is so fun yeah. the merman is probably <laughs> my favourite payoff to a gag in a movie yeah. of, of the last decade yeah. just just Bradley Whitford really badly wanting to see yeah. a merman and it was obviously like a little bit ahead of its time because we move into a world of like Black Mirror and Get Out and like these kind of smart subversions of genre and stuff like that a few years later. So it's wild that it was not the first to do that ever, but you know. No, it's it... weird because it's like you've got the Kevin Williamson trilogy from mm. like the, the late 90s of like Scream, Faculty, and I Know What You Did Last Summer, yeah. which all feel like kind of like modern attempts at doing it and it feels like there's references to faculty the line where he goes like oh the last time we had a chemical breakdown was in 1998 and it's supposed to be like a a, a direct reference and i like that like when you see footage of japan it's like that's the ring (laughs) i can't remember if they list all the countries but it's like russia japan somewhere in scandinavia maybe it's like places known for horror movies basically and this idea that like all of our horror movies are like real and legit or or, yeah i'd like to see the these countries' response to Cabin in the Woods, where they make their own one, you know, that'd be fun. That would be the kind of thing that you could imagine someone doing. Like, let's just yeah. do a anthology movie of like, what's yeah. your subversive breakdown of your country's genre of horror movie? I yeah. also just enjoy the stuff like the whiteboard with all the list of the monsters that have got, <laughs> like angry molesting tree and. <laughs> Just yeah. it, it, it's basically a horror fan's wet dream, and I'm not the biggest horror fan in the world, but like I do mm. enjoy this the way that Cabin in the Woods kind of like breaks down its genres yeah, yeah. And, and and like 
I, I think you can see less of it, but a little bit of that playing with genre in this, particularly with Miles, who is very clearly like playing in the Norman Bates. You know, we don't trust lone employee who's a little bit not there of a really rundown motel. And then he turns out to actually, I don't know if he's a nice person, but you know, <laughs> that, you know they want you to go that way and, and stuff like that. There's also a Quentin Tarantino-shaped elephant in the room. Yes, there is. I, I personally don't really see it. However, enough people say, oh, that's like a Quentin Tarantino film where I kind of have to just accept it. And my response to that, because I am very much on record as hating Quentin Tarantino, but loving this movie, is I have no issues with Quentin Tarantino, the director. I have issues with Quentin Tarantino, the writer and and the person. I think that's the difference is that like this movie is very much like you can lay out the beats of this movie and go they are very similar in terms of it it's like there's a lot of violence that happens very occasionally and very suddenly yep it's it's told non-chronologically it's title cards there's title uh. cards there's a soundtrack of like maybe not obscure as obscure pulls as like Tarantino does in his movies and it also has the Tarantino thing of like it is too long in the way that a lot of Tarantino <laughs> films are too long yeah but and a lot of very long conversations yeah. this movie is so much more interested in like the characters in a yeah. way it's missing some of the stuff where Tarantino is for as long as his films are there is a quicker pace to a lot of his movies or like if if, it, if it's going to luxuriate, it's going to luxuriate for 10 to 15 minutes. <laughs> if it's going to be quick, it's going to be very, very quick. Whereas this movie feels like it's kind of like right in the middle. And mm. it's like, these are our five characters that you're going to give a shit about. Whereas yeah. Tarantino's more like, I'll pull in 20 different characters <laughs> and we'll have a scene which is 15 minutes long with like five of them. There is a difference in, in mentality, I think, even if the outcome is a very on paper similar idea. Yeah, it's got a lot of the aesthetic trappings, I think, as well. So I would also say like things contributing towards me loving this so much and just like my personal taste. I am super into movies that are basically plays. You know, the thing is in a single strange location. It has a small cast. It's in like acts slash parts. I like all of that kind of stuff. And it's one of these stories that's like, none of these people are who they seem and they're completely separate narratives end up intertwining and stuff like that. So all of that is like very up my alley as it were but i realize it's not for everyone and like you know i'm under no illusion that this is a phenomenally well-reviewed movie it's not just that this is a box of i mean it bums me out that no one went to see this because i would hope the names in it and the style alone would be enough to just morbidly intrigue enough people to make it at least profitable but it wasn't i think it's just got the the unfortunate notion of like when it came out yeah and like what kind of movies was up against because it's up against one of the biggest movies of of the year i remember i wanted to go see it in the cinema and it, it was not playing within like 30 miles of me and when it was playing it was only playing for like a week and it's like oh man like some of this is down to a lack of push and like i don't know how much harder they i mean they i i thought that when i saw the trailer it intrigued me i don't know what more they could have done maybe slightly I think, more yeah no it's just i think it's just the time of year it comes out it's it's horror adjacent and i understand what they're kind of thinking of when they're going like right we're gonna open this movie in october but the fact that it opens and like stuff like venom is is <sighs> still in the cinema at that point venom fucking sucks <laughs> it does but like, it's, it's 
you could I can see why audiences that are so trained to think that like Super and it, this is the eternal problem of, of cinema at the moment, which is like this looks like a movie that you can watch at home on Netflix, as opposed yeah. to like I don't need to rush to the cinema to see this. It feels like the kind of movie that actually people have seen it since it, it hit home video. Like I, yeah. I messaged a group of friends like yesterday and was like, Who here has actually seen Bad Times of the Hour Royale? And I actually got like a couple of people who aren't filmy people going like oh yeah no i've seen it and it's like yeah. okay so when this hit a netflix or an amazon you checked it out then but this wasn't the kind of thing you watched the trailer off and went like go go to the cinema we have trained people to think venom is... you must see every superhero movie opening weekend to be in on the conversation exactly yeah. exactly yeah and, that kind of sucks <laughs> it, yeah it's, it's really depressing because this is the kind of thing that you want to support even if you don't love this something like this surely people who genuinely love film uh, would want to see get more of a chance than it does it, As... should, we, should we do opening weekends then? yeah let's do opening weekend because you know we're in 2018 a lot and we've just had to do some diversions to Cabin in the Woods and Quentin Tarantino so let's just do opening weekend and then get into it cool so this movie opened at number 7 at the UK box office to the equivalent of 6 143,000 US dollars. Uh, I don't like um, it when we say thousand instead of million. <laughs> <laughs> it opened the fourth highest new opening of the week behind First Man, Smallfoot, uh-huh. Clergy. First Man's good. I've not seen the other two. <laughs> I haven't heard of the other two. <laughs> Smallfoot's just like a random animated movie. I think it's got James Corden in it. Oh, good. <laughs> but yeah, like the top three of the box office this week are Star is Born, Venom, and Johnny English Strikes Again at the UK <sighs> box office. We have a problem where... Rowan Atkinson continues to be a box office drawer in the UK. Historically I mean, a great man. Historically great man. Maybe some iffy politics nowadays, but... Oh, does he? Oh, don't don't look up some things he said about <laughs> certain topics. But, like, obviously, like, Star is Born is great. Venom is not good. There are people that really, really love Venom, and I don't understand... <laughs> Because it's it's a Marvel take on what DC have been doing. It's not even a coherent right. film. It's like it's so Frankenstein together. It's ridiculous. I don't like Venom. I do think that there is a kernel of a good movie there if they could drill down and focus on what the fuck Tom Hardy is doing. Because Tom <laughs> Hardy is playing a completely different character to what the rest of the movie wants to be. And yes. it's the most fascinating part of it where it's like, oh, Tom Hardy is taking the piss for this entire fucking runtime, like doing a funny voice when he voices Venom. I know. And- I'm like, is this the... <laughs> Is this the voice you wanted to go with at the end? <laughs> there is a version of Venom that I think fully understands how dumb it is and like what yeah, 90s Venom should be. It does kind of feel like he's in a comedy or a parody and then the rest of the movie is this weird fake horror film. Yes, exactly. And it's like, I want to see the, the Tom Hardy, like I want to see Tom Hardy write and direct this thing because Tom Hardy understands something that I don't think anyone else involved in But then in whenever he does. talks about how disappointed he is that they cut footage, he's talking about how like violent and sweary it is. And I'm like, but that doesn't, sound like it would make it better Tom it doesn't sound like it would fix the part where Venom goes Eddie we're both losers and it's like oh my god I mean we have to remember that Venom 2 is called Let There Be Carnage which (laughs) is objectively a great title well speaking of objectively a great I don't know bad times there right it was a fine title let's talk about it so in our prologue an unknown man takes a room at the LRL rips up the floorboards hides a bag of money and then he is killed I'm pretty sure they only got Nick Offerman to do this because he can authentically work with woodworking tools when ripping up the floor (laughs) because you never really see his face I mean you can see him in the long shots and then he shows up again wearing a mask near the end but like it's like why did you get Nick Offerman and I I think it's because of that <laughs> I, I do find it funny because obviously Drew Goddard didn't work on Parks and Recreation, but there are two Parks and Rec alums in this movie. Yes. I don't know if you know this, but the cast of Parks and Rec, pretty good. 
pretty good. Yeah, There's also a cameo from John Hamm, so... They all work together, but it's just it's just quite funny. I assume that, like, after working on The Good Place with Mike Schur, Mike Schur's just like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll give you <laughs> Nick Offman's member to come and do this, like, two-scene little stint in this movie. Yeah. Neither um, of which you can see his face at all. No, exactly. I loved it immediately. Like, it's little things that, like, I'm sure most people don't give a shit about, but static camera, time-lapse, like, it's so slow. Like, you know, you, you look at the room before he's even walked into it, and, and then, like, establishing the time period with the old-timey radio and this song by the four preps and everything and oh yeah like yeah. there are two things that i'm not going to criticize about this movie and it's production design hmm. and it's just acting quality yeah. like, <laughs> like at the end of the day like this this movie looks great drew goddard is very good at these very nice long single take scenes yeah. deceptively not complicated i think yeah, is, yeah, yeah is one of my favorite things about them is that it's like it's a lot of camera movement but it's a lot of kind of almost wes anderson-y yeah. movement of the camera in some ways like well, all the scenes in the in the like little corridor where they can look into all the bedrooms mm, and stuff like that like it's all moving across like a 2d plane i mean contributing to the cost of this movie of 32 million dollars despite all the actors taking pay cuts they built this hotel it is a fully explorable space and that can't have been cheap. I love it. I think it translates to a better looking movie because of it. And it, it's so quirky and specific. And they had all this custom stuff made and everything. But I think that affords camera movement because it is a, a, a legitimate location built on a soundstage. But, you know, they had that free movement and it was very meticulously done to allow perfect lighting without too much artificial light and stuff like that. One thing I didn't jibe with was I was in my head trying to figure out how the two separate kind of avenue rooms work mm. because it's like you see the El Real and it goes quite far back to have like the casino side and the, the bar side well, I think there is actually a hotel as well but only the motel rooms are open so like okay. the, the main building also has hotel rooms in it but they're all closed and only the motel rooms that are like outside are open it was it was more like how does he is he, is he walking the entire like when john ham goes back and you see him oh, across sure. the like nevada california divide is yeah. he walking to the entire length of the hotel room via the the little concierge area i guess yeah like that that's like my one thing where i was like i don't understand where the geography is where like obviously he crosses over at some point yeah. but like i can't figure out mm. how that is it must, it must connect a little, yeah. My one minor quibble that kind of like threw me <laughs> on the geography. Sure. So ten years later, a quartet of guests check in to the now. Well, we don't know how well it was doing before, but it is very clearly run down now. The El Royale. So again, this is much like Cabin in the Woods. There are little things in here that take on more meaning when you know everything. It's very Goddard. It's very Whedon. Like Darlene arriving with her rolls of carpeting. Flynn standing there looking very lost in the parking lot, that kind of stuff. I think the quirkiness of the set when you see them, you know, this this hotel that is straddling the state line between California and Nevada, the, the hotel decor is done in different colour schemes down the middle of this line. They cannot sell alcohol in Nevada, but they can in California. Californian rooms cost a dollar extra. Like, all these little things. I think it's like, wow, this is a cool weird place that you have it's a made. cool weird place and i enjoy that we get the setup to it but there's one of those things where like and again it's just where every single scene is like a minute or two too long it's like did we really need john ham explaining what the motel is and then, and then have ham. miles do it yeah yeah sure it's just like i love miles's little speech and i love the joke they make well it pays off then. with you know with emily interrupting him <laughs> in the middle of yeah. it i don't give a shit i'll tell you this one <laughs> speaking of john ham instantly electric as this motor mouth misogynistic like asshole 
vacuum salesmen like Laramie Seymour Sullivan going on and on and on at them. Uh, I would wager he has about 60 to 70% of the dialogue in this scene, despite there being like six people in it. When you get John Hamm and you know he's going to be the first one that leaves the movie, you you do kind of have to go like, right, we need to get get your money's worth, yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He functionally is the lead of like the first hour of this movie in a lot of ways. Everyone else is, well, I mean, he's mysterious as well, but he is the first one to offer up his secret and he drives the plot forward but then he's also like the exposition machine while we're left to ponder over this mild-mannered pair of a priest like, and a singer like he he really is the person that like sets the plot in motion like yeah. if he if he only does what he's there to do which is basically find this this video reel and do nothing else hmm. None of the rest of this movie happens. Exactly, yeah. Other than maybe Bridges knocks out Cynthia Rebo. Yeah. The way he writes his script, like I said, of things taking on more meaning, there's also like a great deal of consequence. His if he doesn't play the role of asshole to like divert attention from himself, maybe Emily doesn't fucking shoot him to death. <laughs> maybe she does, I don't know. But the way he treated them sets up everything else and then of course him like pulling all the jumper cables and all that you know little things like him assuming that she works in hospitality because he's trying to sell vacuums and like oh it's the only way a priest a negro and a salesman could afford to stay here because it's so cheap and like assuming she might be a sex worker because she's brought her own bed linen and stuff i love how heightened he is in this entire yeah. moment, it like it feels fake even at that moment, just the way that he talks. <laughs> yeah, it's so thick, and like the triple name, like he's picked the most like this kind of person name. It feels like a less hammy huh, Penoir Blanc yes. kind of thing. Like, and probably because he's actually American versus I think British actors do decent jobs with American accents, but I do hear things where it's like it's always got to be so over the top. They can't just do a baseline accent but yeah he fucking crushes this and he's i haven't seen mad men but you know this sort of misogynistic salesman type per, i know he's in advertising but that's that's sale whatever and obviously mad men is kind of going for more of a like look at this kind of tragic figure whereas this is playing it so much more for comedy where it's yeah, like yeah. what an asshole yeah. yes not that he isn't an arsehole and the show is not well aware that he's an arsehole in Mad Men, but it definitely is like, when yeah. he is the lead of your TV show, there's yeah, a slightly yeah. different outlook on, on terms of what you're doing there. Yeah, like, little things like Darlene having to pay for a coffee she didn't ask for that he poured for her and stuff like that. And, and not offering to pay for it once, like, it comes out <laughs> like 25 cents per cup and can force it on this woman. is more money then than it is now, obviously, because they're staying there for $8, which is... <laughs> a coffee would probably cost $8 these days in a hotel. Uh, a pie is um, only 25 cents. I want a piece yeah, of pie. I don't understand <laughs> the economy of this. So Darlene is like incredibly polite and mild-mannered and wants to keep to herself and everything. But like seeing her struggling to maintain that decorum in the face of all this male ego. I mean, where Flynn like offers to help carry her bag and she's like, no. And she's like... <sighs> No, thank you. <laughs> like, I, I like that about it as well. That like we get these hints about she's got more fire in her than than they want us to think or whatever. Miles, as we said, is is the you know the lobby boy, the the like what's going on with him kind of guy. He is spooked to see a priest standing in his hotel and makes this big point of this is not a place for a priest, father, and all that. As you said, like him giving his little speech only for um, so Emily arrives last, Dakota Johnson. She's a hippie. Laramie fucking hates her for two reasons. <laughs> you know, when you find out he's an FBI spook, that's another reason to not like a hippie, but he's also playing this, like, misogynistic role as the salesman, so, yeah. Uh, but yeah, her si- interrupting the sales pitch, signing the ledger as fuck you, 
not caring if the rooms are clean or not, all of that. I feel Dakota Johnson is the least served of the big four guests, and it's a movie that's already too long, so I'm not asking them to add in a ten-minute vignette for her. However, when we get to... Because they do kind of give her one, but it focuses entirely on Rose, and I sort Mm. of wish you just ditched that scene on the beach with Billy Lee for something more with Emily, and then you can do the Billy Lee reveal after Billy Lee arrives like that one where he's walking through the fields and then they're in their little commune i think that would work without us having already met him earlier in the movie personally dakota johnson is fascinating because Mm. i always like her yeah when she shows up in movies she has never done a movie that i love (laughs) i like her in bad time the r.a.r i like her in peanut butter falcon she's fun in like those other movies that i've seen but like i sit there and go like she's in a vaguely it's not good but there's like this um, dumbass like sex comedy called Date and Switch that she's in. That's that's like fine. I mean, she's in Five Year Engagement, which I like. She's in Jump Street, but but yeah, she's she's barely, in, she's barely in Jump Street. She's barely in Social Network. Like she's oh, really yeah, good course. in that one scene in Social Network. But yeah. like, <laughs> I struggle to say that like this is something that's like using her. her well, I mean, when you look at the re- like most of the rest of her career is like Fifty Shades of Grey, Need for Speed. How to How's be single. A movie we saw in cinema together. We did see it together. What a weird thing that happened. I heard people really like Peanut Butter Falcon. Do you not? It's fine. Like, it's aggressively fine. fine. It's, yeah. it's very like, okay. It's a very yeah. okay film. It's not even my favourite of, like, the Shia LaBeouf return movies from that year. I vastly Honey preferred... Boy. Honey Boy. Yeah. But, like, it's just, it's just one of those things where it's like, oh, you're really fun in this. Yeah. I wish the movie was better. And it's a similar thing, it's a similar thing here where it's like, she is the least served and she is probably, like, the one who I'm right, writing about the least in terms of, like, oh, yeah. this performance is the thing that, but it's just like, she has a energy yeah. that I appreciate. Just... I think she has strongly hit the notes of, of what was written for her character. It's just not a lot was written for her character. And I guess, you know, making her the, the mysterious quiet one who doesn't want to talk to anyone like is part of it but like yeah i kind of wish given we get so much for the others i kind of wish we had something for her but subsumed by the whole charles manson yeah. of all of it like i don't know what you're trying recent... to say ben but in this recent trend of like movies doing charles manson even tarantino has done a fucking charles manson movie at this point yeah he's the same song <laughs> <laughs> She is the one who I think gets the least of her own plotline because her plotline is It's all is so... entirely about her sister and Billy Lee, yeah. That's, yeah. that's what I mean. I wish we knew something about her as a person separate from her sister. Like, if we met her and then introduced the backstory of the sister later... Almost like the inverse of Cynthia Erivo. Her story is the most banal of all of them. It's yeah. just like, I just want to sing. I just want to sing. Just leave me the fuck alone. You're all the worst. <laughs> and everyone else is like, I'm an FBI agent. I'm a bank robber who went to prison for ten years. My sister's part of a murder cult and committed a murder like 24 hours ago. I'm history's and... worst war murderer. <laughs> <laughs> like uh. there is nothing, and it in some ways makes her like, whilst I think her flashback is like the best of all of them in terms of like what it tries to do and yeah. it's just because it's her singing an awful lot, I'm like is this the one I would cut? I'd certainly it trim it down a bit. It doesn't add anything really that cannot be done through one of her conversations with Jeff Bridges. I think this whole movie could be fixed into a borderline masterpiece with with some editing, to be honest. Even just using the footage it's got, I think you could just move some stuff around, cut some stuff and this would be like something people are like, oh my god, why did no one watch this movie? Yeah, there is a director's cut of this movie that potentially could exist. You just have to add Jared Leto and Joanne. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it exists. 
but we're going to add a fuck ton of stuff to it and spend the budget of an average movie on it. Oh, fucking come out of this with a Justice League two. Like, imagine God. if that is what the when they've of this already is. moved away from it and recast Batman. <laughs> Oh, for goodness sake. So I think now, so obviously we, we kind of split off everyone off into yes. their own little rooms, and you think you know what the structure of this movie is going to be, which is, I guess, similar to Handmaid, in yeah. which you see the same events of the movie play out from all these different perspectives. But Except it, it doesn't quite do that. It doesn't quite do that, because it kind of goes like, we're going to see each room, and then we'll pretty much break off, and then we'll just continue on the narrative. The present scene is actually playing out from many perspectives but it's not it's not the same scene from a different angle it's like we'll see Darlene knock Flynn out and then we go to Flynn being woken up and then we go to what Darlene was doing then but she doesn't actually directly interact with any yeah it's it's just close enough to doing that that you wish it did it or that it wasn't yeah. that close to doing it exactly sure. it's like they serve up these vignettes and you think the movie's going to be this like okay yeah. we're going to get four like scenes and then maybe it all comes together at the end yeah. except there's just a lot of stopping and starting and there's yeah. like a flashback that they'll throw in and then for whatever reason you get the scene of John Hamm's murder three times <laughs> in like quite you gotta get your money out of John Hamm <laughs> I like her one the best when you see him get blown backwards into the mirror from her perspective outside the room. No, yeah, I, I, I feel you for sure that, like, this either should have been, like, Handmaiden and, like, had a bit less of a dramatic final act and more of a, like, oh, now I have the full picture, the whole thing makes more sense. Well, yeah, you almost think, got think... to the end much earlier in the movie. It's yeah. this weird, the focal point of the movie is the murder of John Hamm, because you <laughs> see it from so many different perspectives, yeah. and it takes about 15-20 minutes for them to finally get everyone into all those places. It doesn't deflate the movie, but there is a weird moment of like, well, they've just seen this murder, so now everyone goes back to their own separate plot lines and, and mm. does a bit more of like their story. But I do of. also like that it teases you in that way, where like Darlene hits Flynn with a bottle, and then we have to wait a while to sort of know why she... I mean, we know that he's dodgy, and she's obviously got her suspicions, but, like, I don't know, it kind of... It will plant something intriguing and then move to something innocuous and then go back to intrigue, and I, I like that aspect of it, but... Oh, yeah, like, yeah. you can keep all of that. Like, there is a yeah. version of this movie where you get the scene of them sat down eating the pie and having a lovely time, mm. and then you knock it out, and then you carry on with, with Jeff Bridges, you get that kind of stuff but yeah. it's just it is the way that it kind of it feels weirdly like it wants to do so many things that it's not able to sit back and take its yeah, time yeah. and yet it also sits back and takes its time in really <laughs> interesting ways maybe I'll put my money where my mouth is about thinking I could edit any movie under two hours or whatever and like, <laughs> I'll just actually do my own cut of this movie when we're done I mean that's the I was coming I was coming away from this and going in my head like what would I cut and I'm like sat there going like I understand every single decision of why they kept every single thing in this movie mm -hmm. as as a person who thinks about structure and stuff like that I'm sat there going like I understand why every single scene is in this movie yeah and yet just arrange like, them a little bit better and trim them a little bit or even <laughs> like what like I'm just thinking like what would I cut I'm like well does does Jeff Bridges having dementia do anything yes other than to give Jeff Bridges something to play I suppose there are loads of little little moments that I think work when you know he has dementia and everything. Sure, but a lot of that could be gone like he's just someone who's older who can't remember where he agreed to meet his brother. Like, every well, single one of those. That, and... 
I don't know, like it helps Darlene figure him out a bit. Yeah, it gives them an, an like an empathetic thing for Cynthia Rebo to like Jeff Bridges by the end of this movie and yeah. it gives them something to bond over. I'm just sat there going like, did we really need the two conversations with Cynthia Rebo about him having dementia and then the final scene of him in prison finding out that he's got dementia? Yeah, I guess he could just be a dithery old man. <laughs> so, room one. Laramie is revealed to not be a vacuum salesman at all, but rather a CIA agent who rips his room apart, uncovering dozens of listening devices. I like that there actually is a giant... Is the giant case, is that what he's calling a Fortniter? Or is that, like... A different thing. I've never heard this this term before. I assume uh, for, it's yeah, Fortnite. I think it's like a very sixties like a case that can that can store two weeks worth of stuff. Like is that yeah. The, okay? Yeah, I like there actually is a vacuum cleaner on there, and you have to like take it off and then cut out the bottom lining, and then there's this tiny briefcase, and he's so meticulous with all of his tools and the. All of his stuff in the the lobby is revealed to be bullshit. Even the accent is fake, and he just slips back into his normal John Hamm voice, and yeah, he's and on the phone like... to his to his daughter and and everything. Yeah. One question here is: so obviously they've bugged this hotel, yes, because it's the FBI, and yes. the FBI bugs random places. They seem surprised <laughs> that they find that there's other... two sets of bugs. Yeah. So I thought the reason they would have bugged it would because they were aware that there was stuff here. I think there are implications that like. Management could be the FBI themselves. Management could be communists. uh, Well, the Soviet Union. Let's not disparage (laughs) the concept of communism. Yeah, that it's like two factions and like because he, he arranges all of his bugs neatly opposite each other and they're two different styles suggesting yeah, two, it could be like the fbi and one of the other american agencies like there are a lot of politics going on sure in... i'm just I, in my head i'm like so one set of them is the fbi presumably bugging this place because yeah. someone's coming to stay in the, the honeymoon, honeymoon suite. suite yeah i mean the whole thing with the hotel miles will let reveal is is that like a lot of famous people stay here and we saw the pictures on the um the wall earlier and there's like Marilyn Monroe and the Rat Pack and stuff like that and like it's gone out of business because it lost its gambling license but in its heyday big celebrity hotel he used to film people fucking and, and like use it to blackmail people presumably there are people of interest to the FBI like there's speculation about who is on the, the film the big big film and the most obvious one people jump to is JFK but that doesn't fit the timeline because Miles says the guy came here last year and in 1969, JFK would have been dead for six years. So yeah. I think it's, it's the I think it's supposed to be a JFK alike. I think it's going to be Bobby Kennedy who did die shortly before 1969. Okay, it, it, it definitely is supposed to be because it's. A but senator. there are you know you can draw you could say it's a, it's Martin Luther King who the F, I think the FBI did secretly film fucking someone. So maybe they're going for that. Billy Lee talks about the idea of a man and like I would think that applies more to someone like Martin Luther King than it does to Bobby Kennedy who is known for being related to JFK. Yeah, and it's all about the idea that, like, we can't disparage the memory of a dead man. So yeah, it's someone yeah, who yeah. has died before before this point as well. Yeah, and, like, maybe management is the FBI and that, like, this is them going to clean up their own mess. Or maybe management is the Soviet Union or some other nefarious player. I don't, I don't know. But I think all of that is... I, I just enjoy the spycraft of it, like, watching him rip this room apart. And there's just a comical number of bugs and a comical number of places. And then he follows that hunch through to the mirror. He sort of is carefully counting steps to calculate stuff. And yeah, he ends up in the back passages, uncovers all the two-way mirrors, observes all of the guests, and then he goes and calls director Hoover. You have in the lobby, Miles' TV is sort of doing some work for us, establishing the time period with Nixon talking about Vietnam. And then you get this first mention of a family being murdered 
very on the nose sort of Sharon Tatey type thing. Yeah, you know, like if we consider that Billy Lee is very clearly a Charles Manson stand-in and the implication that like he doesn't kill people, he has his followers do it kind of thing. It's all playing in that wheelhouse. And and when he um the song that plays on the beach when he when he walks up to Rose for the first time is the song that is playing at the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because it is the song that was allegedly playing when Sharon Tate was murdered. I, I don't know. So yeah, like I, that that's all fun stuff and like that's a sort of background story that's playing out. And the little tour of the back rooms was very reminiscent of Cabin in the Woods. The sort of cold concrete and and the observation stuff that's all real good. Seeing Flynn ripping up floorboards seeing Darlene putting the carpet up on the walls to soundproof it so she can sing. All of the singing sequences, as we've said, are incredible. Like the sound mixing, the long takes, Cynthia's ability to just do it on command over and over and over. Um, it's, it's this scene where like he's walking up and down, spends a lot of time looking in Darlene's room, and then we'll walk back and and Father Daniel Flynn will be like just somewhere else in the room kind of contemplative. Like, And you can still hear her. Like this, this vibe of making diegetic soundtracks, I love a lot that she is, you can't see her anymore, but she has to keep singing because she's like contributing to the vibe of the thing. Like he's in this shadowy thing and this sort of juxtaposed music the soundtrack is very like poppy and soul-y and, and like you know motowny and all that and we have all this like you know happy music playing out over some very creepy and violent events and i think that's i mean that's tarantino as well isn't it but yeah i i, I just like the vibe that has uh, i i enjoy the way that this news movie uses music to yeah. kind of like present some stuff because obviously like i think one of the most interesting beats is an awful lot of this movie is doo-wop jazz yeah. 50s 60s kind of thing and then fucking billy lee shows up and he's like deep purple yeah. <laughs> and, and like it just completely changes the vibe yeah, of the rest yeah. of the movie like and obviously like we have it pointed out when when jeff bridges is like oh it's not not my thing not my thing he much prefers what what darlene is doing yeah and that's a moment where like a he's old <laughs> he doesn't know who the isley brothers are he's like, oh your brothers wrote that song and it's like you can play that in a number of ways a he's old b he's sort of a square because he's a priest c he's been in prison so he's not aware of current events kind of thing although i assume they had radios in prison i don't know but you know i like that that works that way and then he of course sees emily dragging an unconscious woman into his room uh, and then he goes and makes his phone call and we cut to room five which is darlene's uh, and we see the flashback of her as a session musician or a, or a backing singer. And even this musical number, which the others have like a, a vibe to the plot. Kind of, or, you know, they, they contribute to the vibe, they contribute to the atmosphere. This is just like, oh, let's just film her singing. And even this is like so lovingly shot. And like, it's probably too long that we see almost an entire song performed. And then, yeah, this, this Mr. Sunday just big dogging her for no apparent reason. There are like sexual and racial implications here. Um, no, ma- there is a reason, Matthew. What's that? It's because Hollywood does in 2018 that the villain of every single movie should be a <laughs> shitty British record producer. Well, because we also fair, have to be fair. and Bohemian Rhapsody in this year, which also oh, have okay. shitty British record producers being absolute dickheads. He, he's dangling the, the prospect of her singing lead and becoming a star and the whole, you know, everything that comes with that. No real reason given why he has picked her out of the three singers. Maybe he knows that she's actually got a shot at it, so he's going to exploit uh, you know, maybe he knows that she's a little Mika or something. I don't know. But she plays this well as well, where she's just sort of having to sit there and get this verbal abuse from this guy. They establish this pattern of they do a flashback and then they do a wonderful transition 
to the present where it goes from her looking at the vocal booth to her looking at her mirror in her room. And they'll do this with, I think they do it with literally all of them. Except for Laramie, I guess. You don't get a flashback with him. I guess you do get a slight flashback because obviously like after he sets up like what he's going to do, they do the whole sequence where he calls into the FBI. Yeah, but his one comes get, afterwards. It's the one wrinkle to it, but definitely he his yeah. one scene is contextualising what his job is yeah, and what the phone yeah. happened on the phone call. True. So yeah, back in the present, she reluctantly accepts a dinner invitation from Father Flynn. She grows suspicious of him and knocks him unconscious before he can drug her drink. We get more of the, on the TV, the Malibu stabbings. It's a man who worked with homeless people, so I don't know, you can do your connections between a cult and homeless people, I don't know. We get more of him looking a little lost, because like, you know, he puts the money on the counter, they split up to go handle food and entertainment, she goes and puts the jukebox on, and then he's just sort of standing there looking very gone. He confesses his memory is going, and Jeff Bridges, I don't know if you know, but he is quite a good actor, and he he plays this, like, his shortness of breath and sort of exasperation in every scene is tremendous conveying that like non-physical pain hollywood loves someone who's like the leonardo dicaprio getting physically tortured kind of stuff they're they're big into that we don't get as much of these sort of more subtle everyday problems and i think he plays it really well yeah this is a fun like it, it almost feels like after he does iron man he kind of shifts over into this kind of career pocket because he obviously has like crazy heart true grit hell or high water this mm. in like the the kind of 10 years afterwards it definitely feels like he's using his age a lot more yeah I, I, he's a rare example of an older actor who doesn't seem to be cowing to the pressure to do look at the stuff robert de niro has been doing he gets the irishman obviously but like bad grandpa and, and shit like that yeah. yeah like you have to you have to talk robert de niro into doing a good movie nowadays but he all <laughs> it, like he does meet the parents and it's just like i'm a comedy actor now and it's like mm, are you bobby are you? that movie deployed your like who you are for comedy effect but that doesn't mean you should pivot into comedy <laughs> i would say bridges has kind of refused to buckle under that and he does continue to take good roles and then yeah he uses his age in his movies they they are both sort of looking at each other suspiciously when the other can't see because we we have no reason to suspect he's not a priest until we see him ripping up the the floorboards and then even then that's, that's when i mean like they do cut in the movie from the flashback at the very beginning of the movie to him stood outside and i true, think the implication true, true, true. there is that like he is trying to be here but obviously it's it's hard to compartmentalize like when you've seen this yeah. movie before what the movie <laughs> yeah. what you actually felt at the first time you saw the movie true. in the trailer they, they have him give that line in the in the car about like i'm not a priest and it's like okay well he's probably the one who's here for the money then <laughs> she tests him she sings a fake hymn that drew goddard wrote just to sort of see if he tries to claim oh yeah i know that one in the way that people do and they they pretend they've seen or heard things he does actually have an excuse to not know things is the thing but he obviously isn't a priest and he's just doing his best impression of one and then she says the thing about how like she has just learned to spot people who are trying to grift people so she's able to see it. I love that she's just like so fucking on it and like sees people perfectly and and is the capable grown up. Yeah, of... I mean, that, I think that's what that's what makes her so interesting in this movie yeah. is she is the only one who is kind of pure of heart, just trying to get along, <laughs> do something for herself, and she's thrown into the midst of this ridiculous government conspiracy murder cult it's bank like, robber nonsense. And it's probably the big change that I would make is obviously she's second bill. Jeff Bridges is first bill because he. Is is Jeff Bridges. Apart from, yeah, Jeff Bridges, he's the biggest star. He is someone who can like hold a movie. Obviously, Hemsworth is a bigger name at this point in terms of like general moviegoers. He but gets I the understand. and. 
Yes. The big change I would make is I would probably pivot into being Cynthia Erivo as the lead lead. Especially like, when this is like, as I said, I came away from this movie not only just loving it, but like, who the hell are you? And I was like, I need to see you in things. I think that is the big talking point for a lot of people when they, when they discuss this movie is what a goddamn star she is. And like, I can't call it a star making performance because no one fucking saw the movie. But, you know, <laughs> in theory. I, mean, I think I think it is because obviously like she's in Widows as well. Which, yeah. But she'd already filmed it though. And I think but, that yeah. also does enough to like people would have been talking about her coming out of that so like, widows is a movie we'll be discussing on this podcast next week yeah. as, a, as a spoiler but she gets less to do in that she is yeah. one i of was the... i was bummed at how little she gets well not little but how much less she gets in that yeah because i, I was mean... so enthusiastic i was like, oh, oh shit she's in this and then i was like oh okay yeah, she's like the fourth <laughs> member of the group, but she's the one who shows up last. It almost feels like Elizabeth Debicki is is the, the second lead of oh, the yeah. movie. I mean, Debicki's fantastic as well. Like Spoilers for next week, yes. They're yeah, all we'll pretty fucking good. Like, yeah, it's like, this is the movie that she does this year that feels like it uses her talents the best. Yeah, it's like, look what, she, look what you have here. And this is her debut movie performance. That's insane. Like, And and then she gets Harriet off the back of this. Or yeah. like not off the back of this, but like, she's just good and she gets to lead Harriet. But it's like, oh, I, I guess you get to sing the song, but it's just so much that yeah. bog-standard historical biopic of someone yeah, 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 who... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like I mean like oh Janelle Monáe is there and it just it feels like we are an important movie because we're about Harriet Tubman mm-hmm. but there are better Harriet Tubman uh, like pieces of media that have existed in the last 10 years including a terrific episode of Underground which is all about Harriet Tubman and basically like a really long monologue and you just make it in like the most banal way you make this movie which ends with her like facing down slave owners Hollywood's obsession with trying to like fix racism or whatever in these really half-hearted toothless ways yeah exactly it's like we made a movie about the worst part period of american history and it's like cool why is the movie interesting is it just slavery bad because yeah they like to go ah oh, slavery bad it took us longer than everyone else to realize but we realize now racism bad here it is we will not be inviting any black people to the awards <laughs> we see him trying to drug her drink and then the, the the jump scare of her smashing him over the side of the head with the bottle i showed this film to my parents and my mother jumped quite loudly at that moment it was fun so we as we said you get the little scene of the other side of of special agent dwight broadbeck's uh, phone call to the fbi and like you know the orders to recover the missing film forbidden from interfering in the kidnapping he's witnessed you see him going around in the rain pulling out all the starter cables um again a consequence for later and why they can't escape and if he had known he would not have done it and just sort of this iconography this is a repeated Hollywood trope of government man in 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 glasses in the rain kind of thing that he can't resist like he looks over in the direction of Emily's room and then we go to room seven as I said I would just dump this flashback with Billy Lee walking up to to Rose on the beach I think holding off on him for as long as possible would have been beneficial yeah they obviously are trying to hide his face they shoot him in a way where you can't see him fully what do you think of Hemsworth's accent work in this I mean, it's it's fine. Yeah, it's it's not quite good. It's, like, it's like, not terrible, but it's not quite good. <laughs> like his inherent charisma still manages yes. to come through. Yeah, which I think is is definitely helpful to what this character is supposed to be, where it's supposed to be like everyone falling in love with him. Yeah, yeah, he's a charismatic motherfucker, and like I love this for him. You know, like he had to lose a lot of his muscle from doing Thor. He's still obviously in terrific shape. I mean, there's a reason why he sat there with like an open shirt for most of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, 
why would you ever have Chris Hemsworth wear shirts? But coming off of his Marvel movies and like had Ra- I guess Ragnarok had Ragnarok's the year before this. This is okay. the same year as Infinity War, and we're about five months out from, okay. from Endgame at this point. But I am glad we've realised that like Chris Hemsworth's charm, like as great as it is that he is a nine foot tall muscular Adonis, his sense of of humour and his charisma are things that we need to be utilising more going forward in his career. Like Heart of the Sea, something or other, like that seemed like such a misuse of him, where he has to be so self serious and everything. I don't know, maybe right, it's good. But Matthew. But... What? He's in Extraction, in which he plays a man called Tyler Rake. <laughs> the most watched movie of all time. <laughs> and I do believe he kills someone with a rake. Oh, God. <laughs> That's upsetting to hear. He approaches Rose, he charms her, blah, blah, blah. And then, like, in the present, we realise that this person that Emily has kidnapped is her sister, Rose. She's tied her to a chair, and it's very, like, I'll keep you safe from him. As, you know, and and again, if we don't see who him is, I think it's more powerful, personally. Oh no, I completely agree, and I but I do enjoy this whole sequence. It's like obviously the entire subtext of this is like she's been brainwashed by this man, yes, and everything that like you. The thing that I like is that like apart from kind of John Ham being a bit scummy and actually like actively sabotaging everything, <laughs> being the the one main fuck up. Everyone else who's there has, like, not altruistic reasons to be there, but, like, mm. let them get on with their shit because they're not hurting anyone else that doesn't deserve it or anything like that. It's like, obviously, Jeff Bridges should come to Cynthia Reeve and go, can I just, like, look underneath your floorboards, like, and, and just... <laughs> How does like, that conversation go? <laughs> I don't know, but it's very much, like, if they just had a conversation about it, it'd be like, yeah, get out of each other's hair, just let him dig up your floorboards, get their load of money, and then yeah. leave. Separately, none of them have any reason to bother each other, and if they'd all just gone about their separate business, everyone would have been fine. <laughs> you know, if Emily's able to just watch Rose, she doesn't call Billy. Miles just shoots up in the. In yeah, the he's just getting high her. in his back room, haunted by his Vietnam ghosts. It's fine. You know, sucks for him, but that's fine. Yes, obviously, Broadbeck cannot help himself. He bursts in to rescue Rose because he's the big white knight. Not understanding the situation, Emily shoots him to death, shatters the mirror, and we hear an unknown person is injured, but. We do briefly see this, when he knocks Emily to the floor, we get a quick transition to her childhood where she has been struck by their abusive father. She sprints upstairs and tells Rose to hide under the bed and don't come out no matter what. And we don't get a full picture of what happened here. We know Rose is a runaway, probably running away from this father. Is there an implication that she, either of them, killed their father? Don't know. Did they just run away and just have to grow up with it? Rose is obviously, like, implied to be damaged by the things she has heard, seen, while Emily, who's the actual direct victim, seems to be a little bit more... She has spent her life protecting Rose and getting punished, you know, absorbing all this punishment, and then she literally dies trying to save Rose at the end. It's just... It just kind of sucks that, like, Emily is so defined by that, but hey. And I, I kind of wish John Hamm didn't die, but someone's got to die and we can't keep you all in this, but great in his scene and a half, or his two scenes, you know. Miles aids Flynn, as we said, sort of flashing back and, you know, moving around in the in the, in the the timeline, you know, he discovers Flynn unconscious on the floor with glass in his head, and because of his sort of... He is so drawn to him as a priest, he respects religion he's clearly a religious person etc so you know we see with his very brief flashback at the end we can infer he was probably raised a devout religious person so like you know he is inclined to just sort of do whatever Flynn says so he just gives him the little tour of the back rooms and everything I like that when Flynn comes to and he's like father and he's like I'm not your father and then he like ends up seeing himself in the mirror and he's like oh for fuck's sake (laughs) that he occasionally forgets his cover because of 
his condition and everything. And he, he kind of has two voices. He's got his, like, very nice fake priest. And I, I guess it's also his, like, I'm in pain, dementia, suffering person. But then he's got this sort of lower, gruffer, more kind of pissed off voice he slips into sometimes when he kind of forgets himself. I like that as well. And yeah, as I said, like, Miles, we're trained to suspect him. He is so desperate for this forgiveness from Flynn. They keep peppering in, like, you know, oh, I've done things and everything. That's my least favourite part of the movie. Yeah. Is I know Tom Holland was rumoured or, like, offered this role. Yeah, he turned down a role, and if you look at the physical resemblance of Lewis Pullman, I assume he was supposed to be the lobby boy, yeah. Yeah, the other weird one is, like, Russell Crowe apparently actually joined the cast of this movie. but In John Hamm's role, yeah. Oh, is it John Hamm's role he was yeah. supposed to be? yeah. Bridges and Hemsworth are cast, and then Crow was cast, so he definitely wasn't supposed to be the Bruce. Right. I would not like that as much, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, but it's just, it's just like, Miles feels like one character too many in a lot of ways. Maybe, but then if you don't put in the work with him, when he saves them all, that's a deus ex machina. Whereas sure, they no, do I, earn it a little bit with all of his hinting. I understand that, but it's almost like, I think one thing that I could potentially, one thing that I would potentially do with this movie if I were like going back to square one would be, he dies in the shootout. Like he, he gets actually dies at that point And it kind of like, that's what causes everything to spiral out of control is that like an innocent person is actually killed at this point. Because when you get to the final scene, it's like, oh, Almost everyone is still alive once Billy Lee still comes, and it feels like there just needs to be like a little bit more bloodshed or a little bit more chaos has been reaped before we get to the final scene. And again, it's just when you get into that final like 40 minutes of the movie when Billy Lee shows up, and it's like, oh, we still need to have one flashback to explain what's going on with, with Rose and Emily, and also Miles finally needs to have his like final confirmation of what he's doing. I feel they kind of, they attach Miles to the hotel itself, which is still unfolding as a mystery kind of thing until sure, the end sure. but he says i only watch who they tell me to watch all this sort of stuff and then he says the thing about you know someone came by you'd know him he was a big deal i feel if it was the fucking sitting president before he was assassinated he wouldn't phrase it as you'd know him so that's What's what makes me think it's either bobby kennedy or martin luther king but either way and then flynn ends up with the film miles gets super fucking shot by emily through the through the thing and then we move to darlene trying to leave. Obviously she can't because of what Broadbeck did to the cars, but she watches the murder unfold, sneaks in and, and like takes his gun and one of the cables. Flynn interrupts her and admits he's not really a priest. And also we see Rose called Billy Lee. It is one of those things where you get to the scene and I'm like, oh god, we're having another conversation where we explain <laughs> what's going on with the dementia. Just Yeah, yeah. He, so he he tells her everything. We get his flashback room for him and his accomplices robbing an armoured truck agreeing to meet up at the El Royale, but, of course, Flynn is arrested and spends a decade in prison. Is I the other accomplice who shoots... I have to assume Nicholas. so, because they have this little debate about whether he's stupid or, like... I can't remember what they say, but, like, is he playing dumb or is he actually dumb kind of thing? Because he doesn't seem surprised when he shows up, and obviously... Well, yeah, like, it's... In the back. They all agree to meet there, and it's like, you know... He tells them, like, you know split up and we'll all meet there. So I have to assume it's the third guy and he wasn't actually stupid, but he didn't get the money, so... Yeah, it's, it's the one downside of the way that scene is shot is that he's just a bit too far back and they're all wearing the stupid fucking masks when we see them <laughs> the next time. Yeah. In a movie that had more time for it, I will say, to agree with you a bit, uh, the sort of horrible thing of him waking up in prison every morning forgetting he's in prison kind of thing, that's quite heart-wrenching to see. 
he's fighting a lot. He has a history of... They don't actually confirm if he has dementia or Alzheimer's, but, you know, confirming his mother had it and that her father had it kind of thing. And he's basically going to live just long enough to get out of prison, but not much yeah. longer, so... And then, and then we get our prerequisite, Shea Wiggum cameo, the man who is in, like, literally every single movie. Of course. He's got to be. Back in the present, he tells her about the money, and seeing no other option, she agrees to split it with him and help him recover it. That he legitimately can't remember which room it was buried in, that he kind of plays the race card with her a little bit when he's like when the FBI come looking for that guy or you know I think he's some kind of cop and when they come looking for him I wouldn't want to be a black woman alone nearby kind of thing yeah and then we get the best scene in the movie yes we do the scene so Emily's interrogating Miles wants to know what's up and then like explores the back area and like she sees Darlene singing and like is unable to see Flynn who is out of sight ripping up the floor and Darlene singing and clapping is, is masking the um the hammering and then the the ripping up of the floorboards I do like this logistically it's kind of stupid because what if Emily walked in in the scene when Flynn is entering the room with her and then ducking down out of sight you know like, <laughs> or what if she didn't watch any of it it's fucking incredible such a smart little idea we also see her like pulling off her wig for the first time and when we see her performing at the end she's also not wearing it it's just like yeah it's just a, it's a nice little character moment as well um, yeah like, I'm not gonna go into like your ostensible views of beauty and stuff like that I'm gonna be yeah. uh, like how I actually am kind of you and then and then Billy Lee shows up Billy Lee does does show up and again if if you didn't know Chris Hemsworth's in it Imagine your surprise when he walks directly to camera in the rain, straddling that line, and like his people are grabbing everyone and everything. And we get that transition of Rose standing over Miles to her standing over bodies holding a knife, and the implication that she is the murderer that everyone's talking about on the news and everything. Yeah, it's it's um, so frustrating. I am literally staring at the poster for this movie right now, and <laughs> he is literally the, front and like, center. You've got to yeah, you've got to advertise him because he's your biggest current young star. But like in a perfect world what if you had no clue we get this little flashback and like i guess my previous take was i would i would lose this one or trim this one but i think this one works effectively like seeing him like feeling himself up while walking through the flower field and everyone following him is a really great visual and then and and just just like how he basically commands like whoever gets the other one up can come sleep with me in bed tonight and it's like (laughs) just so eager like in their little hippie comedy yeah like that he has to pull her back from continuing to fight her and stuff like that and like his fucking fake deep let's have ourselves an allegory while I rob them like this is what the government or society are doing they're pitting you against each other and robbing you it's like yeah alright we get it dude we're all we're all very woke I love when Darlene like rips him apart just cuts to the core of him and like he's a scared little man who is on a power trip kind of thing you know implications about society and like what's changing around this time and and starting to turn on the government in the wake of vietnam and people feeling displaced all of that sort of stuff is all at play here so billy ties them all up in the present demands to know the origin of the money so he can (laughs) figure out should he take it or is it risky because the government are coming for it kind of thing? And then he literally plays roulette with their lives and kills Emily. Again, they put it in the trailers, and I kind of wish they didn't, but it did contribute to me wanting to see it. Him just dancing around as the sexiest man alive with like with his open shirt and his stupid moustache. And just yeah, sort of how how long he dances to Deep Purple for, and they're all just completely not impressed, and he just keeps coming at them. It's like, oh, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it goes on so long, it is 
like it is very hot because Hemsworth is hot yeah. and it's like they're, they're doing well but it does have that like unsettling thing where it's like am I falling for uh, like this this bullshit charisma ploy of this man who yeah. is murdering random people or like setting up small children to like murder random people yeah his little like cult of, of murderers I mean he does kill Emily himself but yeah like this like Rose in the background like the scene before where she's like swinging off a fucking chandelier and like giving away their names after Miles was like I don't know who you are you could just let me live and stuff like that and she's just Emily's obviously aware and concerned about what's happening to her sister but like the degree of what's happening with Rose under Billy's influence it's like she is clearly not well anymore you know like yeah the most fucked up thing about this movie is mm. just the reactions to the deaths where like she does not bat an eyelid when nope. her sister dies the yeah. moment Billy dies it's like her whole world has crumbled down like exactly. this man the degree to which a... she has gotten into her head and like her saying like she doesn't belong to you and he's like are you mine and she's like yep <laughs> so, oh Oh god and him sort of directing his people to go search all the rooms all this sort of stuff and do um, we know what's inspired this like recent trend of like doing stuff about charles manson and sharon tate and stuff like that because it feels like it I, is i bring it all back to like what was the netflix is it just mindhunter or just true crime and i think true crime in general which i i trace back to like um was it how to make a murderer or, or making making a making murderer, a murderer yeah i feel that was the first one and... to blow up and then all the podcasts launch and all the serial ki- there's always been there are channels in america that are just constantly playing these like shoddily made documentaries with like borderline falsified testimonies and stuff like it, it's a thing that has always existed but i feel that made it i, th- I feel netflix and its bingeability has made this a huge right. fucking thing i think serial comes first but obviously serial's yeah. more of like a this is a crime you never heard of it's actually like obviously there's all these stories of like i mean if you read i'll be gone in the dark and it's like the, the one of those women who is very much into solving cold cases and like they've got their little online communities where they'll like travel around and speak to people who are involved in cold cases and try and yeah, solve yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and sometimes they'll make like this huge crack in a case yeah i think a couple of them have actually like new evidence has come to light because of all these this new interest in them and stuff and it, yeah and it is this very much female driven yes thing in a lot of ways like my favorite murder is yeah. very much like a, a massive <laughs> podcast among among women as someone who went to see them in london and being <laughs> one of about fifth, uh, 20 men maybe 30 every one of us accompanying a woman and just hearing the volume of screaming when those two took the stage for an incredibly disappointing live performance. Borderline ripoff, if you ask me. But anyway. <laughs> it's so interesting, though, that this has become like this huge thing yeah. in the last 10 years. And obviously, Charles Manson is one of those ones that like is still very fascinating, even though ostensibly there's not really much to, to no. dig about in there. It's just you just do interesting things with like. You've got the fact that the guy who plays Manson in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the same guy who plays him in Mindhunter and all kinds of weird stuff like that. But yeah, like the obsession with Manson and Jeffrey Dahmer and stuff like this and, and you know the zodiac killing has always fascinated like there's been movies about that including when we covered on this podcast for forever but yeah i feel it's really found this new life and i think sort of the cult nature of it like these charismatic people tricking people into doing their bidding kind of thing i, I think that is what really adds to it but I'm, yeah. I'm very excited to see what kind of movie or tv show comes out about the, the actress from smallville who's in the sex cult <laughs> Like, Alice Mack, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, that was that was a lot to read. <laughs> Speaking of a lot, yeah, like Deep Purple playing him, just the general sound mixing of this whole scene with the roulette and everything. When he just slams the gun down on the table or like 
spins the wheel out of nowhere to break some silence or you know when he interrupts Darlene while she's singing and he's like yeah, oh he's I, like, I've oh, heard better good. but I feel he just said that because she like <laughs> devastated him with her words <laughs> Miles desperately trying to confess in what he thinks are his final moments and him reveling in telling him he's not a fucking priest and then shooting Emily and yeah as I said like her dying without getting a real turn in the spotlight kind of sucks but again it's too long so he continues to torture them like this Darlene, like, is just like, I don't care what's on the film. I'm bored of men like you. You're a scared little man. That he, she think... interrupts him with perfect timing as well. She's like, I've heard it. <laughs> and, like, it think... actually shakes him is, yeah, is great. This is the scene where it kind of, it can't be MLK just because it's like, let me guess, it's another white man who just talks and talks and talks. Yeah, I think it is Bobby Kennedy. But that's disappointingly boring in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I think if they got the timeline better, it would have been great if it was JFK and it was the the, the rumoured, like, Marilyn Monroe sex tape and everything. Well, I think, I think they try and make you think of that because they obviously show Marilyn Monroe staying at yeah, this exactly. establishment. Exactly. But then, like, why would you fuck yourself by saying it was last year and this is now 1969? So, he dead. All you have to do is take out the fact where he says it was last year and then it's very clearly JFK and it works better. Anyway. Yeah. Does she just... You can see he's actually like a little bit like, mm, fuck. And like her, his, her it, one tear in this scene yeah, as well is yeah, really yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. I'm just so tired and yeah. about. And I, you feel it like like that she has been so beaten up by society and, and like all these men saying all these things and just like ah oh, just shut up. I Still don't relevant. know if she makes my like best supporting actresses for this year, but mm. she's definitely like hanging around. She is incredible in this, like. So, so good. Flynn forgets his own name. The worst possible... His real name, which is... Donald O'Kelly, aka Doc. Yeah, so, like, his dementia comes at the worst time. Forgets his own name. Darlene has bonded with him enough that, like... She's like, I believe that much. And, like, they have these private moments despite being surrounded by people. I love that, the way that's played, where they just look directly at each other and sympathise. And Billy is f- creeped out by the du- by the silence, so he wants her to sing... And then Flynn saying he doesn't deserve to hear you sing. And then obviously, you know, he interrupts her anyway. And I like that that pays off because we go to the maintenance closet. Because, you know, all hell breaks loose. Flynn is fighting Billy. Miles is... I guess he's freed. And, like, there's a gun on the floor. And Darlene's like, help us. And he's like, I can't kill again. How many people have you killed before? 123. My one ish complaint with this is it almost feels like I know they're playing it dead straight yeah. at this point, but I almost wish it did have a little bit of that Tarantino kind of like tongue in cheek nature at this point. Like <laughs> the, the entire movie is relatively serious. Yeah. No matter how much kind of like big things happen, it still plays it quite seriously. And I almost wish that this had that Tarantino edge where like this flashback to Vietnam was bigger and broader. We learn that Miles is like a preternaturally good shot since he was a kid like on a farm shooting cans and then he becomes this elite military sniper in Vietnam and he's like the only survivor of this really brutal battle and like falls to his knees and everything and like yeah this has fucked him up and it's why he's strung out all the time and everything but I like that Flynn telling Darlene she doesn't have to sing makes her sing and Darlene telling Miles he doesn't have to kill again is what makes him be like then I will. I think it's so fucking cool. Like, the de- the comical degree to which he is this ruthlessly efficient killer. Kicking the gun up to himself and, like, 
hitting people who are barely even moved from so far. Yeah, just seeing yeah, like him he, just he cut fires, through like, them. He fires five shots, kills five people. Yeah. And then his one weakness is, like, he goes to He takes to pity on, because he has that, like, softness of heart and everything, and she stabs him, Flynn kills her, and then, like, the, the hotel is burning down, and, like, Darlene... It's a very Christ-like imagery at this point. A little where... bit, yes. <laughs> Darlene telling Flynn to help him them sharing this beautiful lie together in his dying moments of, like, absolving him of everything he did so he can die, like, for a few seconds, like, feeling better about his whole life. Again, it's too long, but, like, this is a beautiful scene, in my opinion. And then they end up grabbing the money. Flynn hands the film over, and she just burns it. And it's like, yeah, cool. This is a legitimate, profound, like, friendship between these two. It's not just him sort of using her or anything like that. Because at first he was concealing the film and Billy is sort of cottoned on that this film is worth more money than the money kind of thing. It's just sort of great. And then we end in Reno with her taking the stage and Flynn in the audience. A uh, little cameo from, from Jerry introducing her. Um, and they cut away before one last song. Which, well, you I mean... hear it, but and you do... There are a couple of flashes of her singing it in the credits. But yeah, but like she takes the mic and then we go to credits. Is the idea here that like this is just what her show... How soon after is it? Is this what her show always was? Was. Is she just legitimately good? Or has she, like, become a bigger star because of the money? Is it just, like, she's now able to stay in Reno because of the I, money? Because I she don't... says earlier she stays on the outskirts because it doesn't pay very well. But, like, it doesn't seem like she's a tremendous deal. Like, the people seem a little bit disinterested in her. Yeah, like, there's no rap loud round of applause. It yeah. feels like this is the start of a career for her. But, yeah, it's the thing that I wish we didn't have the context of what her career was like beforehand. Or, I don't know, there's just something about what her... Her actual like arc is she is a nod to a real singer called Darlene. I forget the last name. I'm guessing like someone who is like a backup singer for an Darlene Love, I think, who Darlene. did sing uh, in the Crystals and two of their the song she's singing in the session studio in the back uh, in the flashback. That is a song by them and right. lead vocals was by I think Darlene Love. I, if I've gotten that wrong, sorry, I'm not going to edit it back in. Um, <laughs> as I said, like we've acknowledged throughout, there are many problems with it but just yeah i am obsessed with it on a sort of technical level no that's i mean that's that's fine it's it's a really nice movie and i think all my complaints are not coming from a place of like i didn't enjoy it but from coming from a place of like damn it this movie is so close it's to, so close to that, that's my thing and i think just i am more able to just be like ah oh, what a shame about the things i don't like because i'm so obsessed with the bits i do like i think is yeah. the thing whereas i i fully understand if this movie just doesn't pass as great unless it does those those changes we've suggested for a lot of people and, and that's fair and i'm sure plenty of people when they heard we were doing this were like what really that but hey that's my role on the podcast <laughs> Brought yeah. to you by the person who brought you Chef. <laughs> you do you do at least one of them a season. I've done two this season. Chef and I mean, yeah. I had a good time with Chef. I, I, like, chef, chef is good. Think, it's just Chef, I think, achieves its aims more than this movie does. Even okay. if, like, like the the final hour of Chef is like more pure joy. Yeah. In a lot of ways, just because it's like, yeah, let's just do the fucking like cooking shit. What what a great good time. Anyway, next week we will be doing something that I think is a little bit more conventionally accepted as a great fucking movie. We've already said it. It's Widows, part of our Cynthia Arivo double. Widows is like a little bit slapped on. Mm. This is very much like I think people like Widows, but the fact it doesn't get the Oscar nomination Mm. and I'm I'm just having to go like, yeah, this is I had a fucking great time watching this. I think it had a difficult time threading the needle between like 
is this a movie that's actually good or is this a movie that's mainstream, like, fun kind of thing? And it couldn't decide which it wanted to push it as. Yeah, and it's also Steve McQueen's follow-up to, like, his best picture winner and all the rest of it. We are not sufficiently equipped to do 12 Years a Slave. <laughs> no. As a podcast. No, we are not. We are sufficiently equipped to talk about the one Julian Flynn script we're going to be doing this decade. Oh, disappointed the hell out of me with Utopia. Anyway, that is next week. Until then... Benjamin, will there be movies? There will be movies, but there won't be any more movies with as good a central kind of scene performance as this one. The movies are on the state line between California and Nevada. I don't know. Bye, everyone. <laughs> Still, I didn't know.